0: Those of you who, like me, do paid magic shows will, of course, every time that you get an inquiry, have to make a quote. And in the old days, people used to ring to get the information and therefore you used to have to come up with a a figure that you could charge for a show basically off the top of your head. I mean, yes, hopefully you'll have a scheme of charges in mind. You may even have some stuff written down to refer to. But nevertheless, it's still a conversation that you're having And sometimes, under those circumstances, you will quote a figure and the the person on the other end of the phone goes a little bit quiet. And you often wonder whether the reason that they've gone quiet is because they are perhaps surprised at how much the quote is that you've just made. Now, when people these days make inquiries, they tend to do it by email, of course, or filling in online inquiry forms from your website. And so when you receive that, not only does it give you the opportunity to have a a proper think about, well, okay, how much is the fee going to be for this particular set of circumstances this show presents? But when when you then send it back, the person at the other end has also got time to consider it, to think about it, and doesn't feel pressured to make an instant decision about whether they want you or whether they don't. I mean, in the old days with the telephone inquiries, people would um, say, right, well, thank you for that. Um, I'll, I'll talk to my husband about it and get back to you, which tended to be code for I need to think about this. I'm not going to make a decision right now. Don't know what to think about this fee. And they just want to get off the phone, basically, once they know how much it's going to be. Of course, as I say, these days where where it's not such a an interactive sort of conversation that's going on, then people have got time to think about the fee more. But there is one element of fees which most people don't who are making inquiries. This is most people don't think of doing. But occasionally you'll get someone who tries to negotiate with you. The most common people who do this are people perhaps, let's say, who are running a charity event. Naturally enough, they're trying to keep their costs down. And so they feel that they ought to try and barter or at least negotiate on the fee. But I think the trouble from our point of view is that this puts us into a slightly awkward position. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I've made a quote for my services, then it's something that I feel that is how much I feel I am worth to go out and do the particular show that they want me to do so if somebody comes back to me either by email or perhaps rings me up and goes is there any negotiation on this my reaction is is always the same it's um well no sorry I the price I've given you is the the best price I always give that first and uh, and certainly my other clients have always been very happy to pay that price for the for what you've asked me to do Uh, But, of course, obviously, if it's outside your your budget, then I understand that. But um, certainly for me, that's what I would require in order to come do the show for you. So I will never barter or negotiate on the fee that I've already quoted. Because I feel that if you then say, let's say you quote a fee, let's say, for argument's sake, let's say it's £300. And they they say to you, oh, right, a bit more than I wanted to pay. Can you come down a bit from that? And you go, oh, okay, £250. Then to my mind, anyway, that undermines my original quote. Well, if I can do it for 250 why did I quote £300 to start with? I'm not a car salesman or a double glazing salesman. I'm selling my time and my skills. Um, So in a way, either you know what the value of what you do is or you don't. So to me, it seems counterintuitive to then just drop the price because somebody has asked. Now, of course... I'm in a fortunate position that I'm not afraid to lose a booking if I think that the the fee that they want to pay me, if you like, is lower than the one I'm prepared to accept. Um, obviously, some people, that isn't the case. They, they are more um, keen on getting the booking because they really need the money. So it may give you a different perspective. But certainly from where I'm sitting, as it were, uh, at my end of the career, if you like, I don't have to have every booking. And so I can therefore hold out for what I feel I'm worth to go and do the show that they've asked me for. But it's a difficult one, but people can put you under quite a lot of pressure and it's, it's all too easy just to cave in. What I have found is that if you explain that, no, this is the best fee, this is the fee that I charge, my other clients have been happy to pay that, if the person genuinely can't afford it, okay, yes, you will lose the booking. But often the people who try to negotiate you down it's not that they can't afford it. It's just that they feel that they they have to try to knock you down if they can. Maybe their committee has said, well, why don't you go back to him, see if you can get him to do it for a bit less. So they feel duty-bound to ask. Because on the few occasions where people have tried to knock me down on price and I've basically said, I'm sorry, no, then they've booked me anyway. Oh, OK, well, I had to ask, didn't I? It's the sort of thing that people say. It's almost as if, with for some people... Negotiating on the price is something that they would do with everything, and so why wouldn't they do it with the magician? So, I think when we put in this position, you need to decide in a way just well, what is your time worth, and is it negotiable? I personally don't think that it is, but maybe you have a different view. I was playing around with a mental effect the other day, and it involved me having to have a prediction. And then I started this sort of internal dialogue with myself about whether this prediction should be handwritten or whether I should have it printed. Because it seemed to me, my sort of initial thought was, well, if I have this printed, then it looks kind of too final. Uh, Whereas if I write it, it looks like I'm I'm actually looking into the future and foretelling what's going to happen. But I, I couldn't quite work out initially in my head what, what the difference might imply as to whether the thing was printed or whether it was handwritten. Because I I sort of felt that there must be a difference between the two. But initially I couldn't think what it was. But I, I think I've now worked out what it is. Now probably for lay people this would fly past them anyway, but certainly when I started to analyse it and think about it, the conclusions that I come to are as follows. And you can see what you think about this, whether you agree with me or not. If you're going to do a trick in which uh, a spectator is going to be given some free choices, a choice or several choices, and you say that you're going to write a prediction, then because there's going to be a number of perhaps elements of them selecting things, what you're going to do is you're going to try and show that you can look ahead and work out what is going to happen after he's made all these um after he's made all these choices now to me. I would have to do a handwritten prediction for that particular one because I I want them to believe that the choices that they are about to make are free choices and that the trick is, or the effect, if you like, is that I am anticipating what their choices are going to be and I am writing a prediction on the basis of what I think they're about to do. So it has a fairly fluid sort of feel to it, I think. However, if my presentation changes, I can change the nature of the prediction. Because if I say to a spectator, now in a moment you're going to be making some choices. These are going to feel like free choices, but actually it's a funny thing. But they won't actually be free, because destiny is going to kick in. There are certain things that, no matter how many choices we make in life, there is an outcome that we cannot avoid. And in fact, I know what the outcome is going to be after you have made your choice in a few minutes. It's printed on this card, which I'm placing face down on the table here. You, the, you cannot avoid this. It is on here. I know what's going to happen. So you, see the, so you see the difference between that. The second one where it's printed is I'm saying they will not be able to avoid this particular outcome. And the fact that it's printed and that I then go to another table and I do the same trick and I use the same prediction, if somebody was to come across and watch, it would be fine because the presentation is that it's destiny. And no matter what free choices the spectator will make, they're not going to be able to avoid arriving at this particular end point that I have printed on the card. Whereas if I want them to believe that their free choices are random and that they arrive at a point that nobody could know except for me, the magician, I'm going to make a prediction then in that case it's not destiny it's simply the culmination of various choices a spectator makes that I am going to try and predict and in that case I think I should hand write it to make it look like every time I do it it could be a different outcome because it's different spectators making different choices which ends up at a different place. So I think that makes sense. And, and certainly in the terms of the trick that I was thinking about, it meant that I had to write the prediction and not have it printed. Um, but what do you think? Have you ever thought about that? And in, if there are any prediction tricks that you already do, you could try applying that logic such as it is uh, and see whether you are actually doing the write and inverted commas thing by having it either handwritten or not. Years ago, I was put by an agent to do a large event and I had to work with another close-up magician. And we were discussing how we were going to cover the number of tables that we had to get round. And he said to me, oh, what I like to do, he said, I don't like to do them in order. I don't like to do them in a specific area of the room. He said, "I, I just dot around and go to tables and I try to go back to... I do go up to a table, I'll do a couple of minutes and I'll go away. And I'll come back to the table again, perhaps later if I get time and do some more. And I like to go back to the table several times. I've never really heard anybody else who does it like that. And and for me, that just wouldn't work at all. I've never liked going back to a table. I like to, to go up to a table or to a group, to entertain them for a few minutes, do all my best stuff, all my best lines... And then I like to say, thanks very much, love it to me, you enjoy the rest of your evening. And I like to leave and go to another group. To have to go back, it somehow just doesn't feel right for me. I can remember um, I used to do, I think it was for about three or four years in a row, um, I did a booking each year for a particular company uh, at a social, and it was a dinner for a, a select number of people, about 15 people. And... I used to have to perform two or three tricks in between each course to everybody. So in other words, I came back to the same table three or four times and I really didn't like it at all. You'd think it wouldn't really matter. It's just like doing a show and just spreading it out a bit. Uh, It really didn't work for me. I just didn't like having to kind of start again. And after a while, when I went back to the group, I thought, oh dear, I was... I didn't want them to think, oh, no, him again. I've got to stop my conversation again and watch some more magic. And I think there is a feeling like that, that if you go back to a group, and there are some groups where the people are hugely enthusiastic about magic and they are desperate to see you do some more stuff. So, I mean, if you have time to go back to a table like that, I don't see any problem with that. But doing it routinely, having to go back to some tables where, to be honest, two or three tricks, that's all they want they don't want anymore there are other things going on in the event uh, at the event that to take their attention and so to have the magician constantly coming back might actually be an irritation in the same way that if two or three magicians are working an event and they all go to the same group rather than all doing different groups that could be I think a bit of an irritation too so um, going back to groups not for me even though it seemed to work for this person In the November issue of Magic Scene, there's there's an interesting article by Mel Mellis about comedy, and uh, he offers an explanation of how he has gone about creating his own comedic persona and the way that he has structured his comedy performances to make them something more than just a delivery of lines that are funny. And he he talks about it being based on consistent character. Uh, And I really like this because I've always felt that this is the reason why, if you're watching, it doesn't have to be a magician, if you're watching um, a comedian, for instance, you can have one comedian who can give a line or, or tell a joke that is really, really funny. And you find yourself rolling in the aisles. Another entertainer could tell the same joke or give the same line And it just wouldn't feel funny. And the reason is, quite often, it's all to do with the delivery. And whether the line or the joke is appropriate for the character that you as an audience member perceive that this comedian, or in case of comedy magicians, magician has. Mel has a very specific type of character anybody who's seen him, within a few minutes will understand what that personality is. Graham Jolly is the same. He, he also has a very clearly, consistently defined personality. And all the humour that these guys get when they do their shows comes a lot from an expression of these personalities. So it's, it's not the actual words that they use. It's not the things that they say. It's kind of like the, the attitude that they say them with or the timing or the situation that they create that they then drop the line into. It fits. It fits them, their personality. It fits. It's consistent. And all of their gags and all of their humour lends itself to in a particular way to make it funny and you find this with good sitcoms on on the tv as well they create characters and that's why when you when you watch a sitcom when you first see it you may not find it particularly funny but as you start to watch episode after episode you start to find it increasingly funny and it's not because necessarily the writing is any gets any better, it's not necessarily, although it could be partly to do with this, that the actors themselves get into their parts more. It's just that you don't know initially what the characters' characteristics actually are, and what their particular annoyance is or, or what their particular um, idiosyncrasy is. And because you don't know that initially until you've seen several episodes, the jokes that are made that are, that are centred on these particular elements, you, you don't know what they are. It's only after you've watched a few, things, certain characters will say things, you think, oh yeah, that's really funny. And it's funny because they are consistent with that. And I think as magicians, we, we sometimes forget that. Without having a consistent personality and fitting our comedy into it, all that we're actually doing and all that we're left with is a series of stock lines and maybe even stock jokes. But if it doesn't fit us or it doesn't fit our our performance and our performing personality, it can be the funniest line in the world. It just won't work for most audiences because they won't see it as being a natural thing for you to say and therefore it doesn't build. Good comedians get their audience on a roll of laughter and all their humour is of of a particular type. It's not wildly different from one moment to the next. It has a consistency. And it's that that builds the rapport between the performer and the audience. And they start to appreciate his sense of humour. And that's why also, if you some comedians you like and some you don't, some magicians you like, others you don't, it's because if you tap into their sense of humour and you like it, everything they do, hopefully, if it's consistent, you'll enjoy. But also the opposite is true. If you really don't like their sense of humour, you don't like their delivery, then everything that if it's consistent, everything that they say, you're probably not going to like. But consistently is definitely the key, I think, to having a successful comedic personality. Now I was talking earlier on in this podcast about the three different types of show inquiry that I think many of us can get, the sort of cold, warm and hot versions. And when the probably the most common, it could be the warm ones, the ones where they do a bit of research and then they want to find a magician who can supply what they then think that they need, having read on a few websites what magicians can offer. And to get the inquiry to come to you, when there might be a lot of competition out there, you need to, as much as possible, or your website needs to give you some credibility. Now, credibility can be done by you having some good video footage showing you working, so, that people get a feel for for what it's like when you're uh, what you're like, even as a performer. So, that's a good thing. And also, of course, um, testimonials nice things that people have said about your act when you have performed for them. Now, how you get those, of course, you can just sit there and hope that you've done such a great job that after each show, people will write to you and say, that was the best magic show I've ever seen or whatever. But actually, in practice, this doesn't happen because I think much as we would like it to, no matter how great a job we've done, generally speaking, people kind of move on. They've had their event. They've had their wedding. They go on honeymoon. They've had their, part, their 70th birthday party uh, and they get on with the rest of their life. So in order to get enough testimonials, I think in a way you have to try and elicit them. And the way that I've always done that is to send after each booking to the person who's booked me an email. Now, ostensibly, this email is to, to thank them, and it's something I want to do anyway, to thank them for booking me, to entertain them. But then, as part of that, I then also say and that if they have any positive comments that they would like to make about how the magic helped with their event, that I would be delighted to receive them. Because uh, and pass them on to other people. Consider considering booking me, because obviously it's always better to hear what people say who've actually seen the magic. And I'm upfront about that. I say, you know, if you would like to make some positive comments, so. In other words, I'm not asking for just general feedback. So, if there's things that are wrong, I'm not actually asking for that. I mean, actually, if something is wrong, I hope I hope I will know, or I hope that they will tell me anyway. But, but for in terms of soliciting positive things that I think you need to ask for just a couple of positive comments and in these days because there is so much emphasis these days on whatever you buy whatever service you use people are asking you for referrals I think it would it's not surprising that we as magicians should do that too so the fact that you ask um, will not seem strange I don't think it won't seem too forward because they get asked by Amazon every time they make a they make a a purchase they get asked to to rate it but I think the key here is is to ask for positive comments and then when you get those what I do is um, I keep them all uh, on in various files on my computer and I and I split them into like all wedding comments and all sort of birthday party comments and so on and so that then I can put some on my website, but also every time I have any communication with somebody who's making an inquiry about possibly booking me, then I will have one relevant quote that will be somewhere on the email or whatever, or the confirmation um, PDF or whatever it is I'm sending them, it will have a relevant quote of someone else saying that they'd booked me to do what this person is either inquiring to or what they've just booked me for, saying that it was great when they had me do the same thing. I think it kind of builds the confidence in you as a performer that other people have said that what they want you to do, they've already had and it was great. So even when somebody's already booked, I still put one on, one they haven't seen before. I never repeat one to the same person. So that it, it gives the impression, hopefully rightly so, that I will do a good job for them and that they can trust me and that if they haven't booked me already, they really should. One of the most popular close-up tricks with all close-up magicians is the card-to-wallet. And considering how many different versions of the card-to-wallet are out there for you to consider, sometimes it can seem a bit impossible to make a decision about which one to use. Actually, if you, if you look at card-to-wallet generally, there are two basic methods. One is a palm and load, and the other is a no-palm version. And within each of those two categories, there are lots of different variations. But those are the two main types I would suggest. And I think if you're trying to work out, well, which would be the best one for me, is to look at the pros and cons, the advantages and disadvantages of the two different types. So I thought we could do that. So, for instance, a palm and load wallet. That's great because the card appears instantly, without any fuss, inside the wallet. It really does cut brilliantly quickly to the chase. However, there is a stress involved because obviously in order to get that card into the wallet, you've got to palm it. And a lot of magicians are not confident with that. They feel that they, especially if they're working surrounded, they don't have the confidence to, to do the slight effectively and smoothly. So if you're going to go down the no palm route, then you've got to, to realise that in order to get a card into the wallet, you can do it completely surrounded. There are are probably absolutely no angles, so that's great. But the disadvantage is, of course, that you, you are going to have to get the card into the wallet through routining. There is a certain sequence that you're going to need to go through in order to end up with that card inside the wallet. Whereas with the palm, you can just go for the wallet, bring it out, and there's the card in the wallet. With the no palm version, you can't short track it. You've got to go through the required handling in order to make sure that the card ends up in the right place. The other thing about a palm and load is that it does allow for extra layers of impossibility. A lot of people like to use, for instance, a card that ends up inside an envelope that's sealed in a wallet. Which really, in a practical sense, you can only do with a palm and load. Of course, palm and load wallets, you do have to hide them away in your jacket or in your pocket, Uh, they can't be out in the open. Whereas, of course, with a no palm, you can actually have the wallet out in view. You haven't got to have it secreted away and then suddenly bring it out. You can have it visible right from the start. So when a card ends up inside the wallet that's been in view the whole time, you could say, well, that's impressive. That's even more impressive. But the only problem is, if you have the wallet out in view and you're doing a card trick, it could be that the spectators will second-guess where the card's going to end up because you're fiddling with the wallet, so that you don't get the element of surprise that you do with a palm and load, where the wallet's out of out of sight, and you simply go to your pocket, bring it out, open it, and there it is. Of course, trouble is, palm and load wallets, sometimes they have external slits you've got to hide, things like that, slides you've got to fiddle around with to to, to reset them. Maybe that's uh, something that uh, could be a disadvantage. But they do have the advantage that you can palm and load other things, such as coins, banknotes, pictures. And in one memorable case, though I actually personally didn't think it was a particularly good trick, but a mobile phone ended up inside a wallet. So there are all sorts of different things that you can do with a card to wallet. Um, And when you're coming to make a decision, I think it comes down to, How quickly do you need to achieve the trick? Does it want to be a spontaneous thing or can you evolve a routine that you don't mind going through every time so you don't have to palm the card in? Do you want the wallet to be out in view? Can it be away in a pocket? Do you want to load anything else other than a playing card? There are all sorts of things that you can think about and then based on that start to make a decision. But I suppose the bottom line is if you're not prepared to palm a card in front of spectators, buying a Palm and load wallet is a complete waste of time because you may think you're going to do it, but when push comes to shove, you're probably not going to. In which case, you'd be better off going for a no palm version and working around the restrictions that that might give you. So, food for thought if you're in the market for a card to wallet.